When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is a special episode of the History of the World podcast on the history of Thailand. The country of Thailand can be found on mainland Southeast Asia, an area of the world that has also been called Indochina. In terms of the Indochina Peninsula, Thailand is very central. It is bordered by Myanmar to the west and by Laos and Cambodia to the east. The country extends southwards into the Malay Peninsula where it meets its border with Malaysia. Evidently, early humans discovered this part of the world as proven by the uncovering of the Pleistocene period bone fossils. These are believed to be closely related to Homo erectus and date between half a million and a million years old. There is also evidence of stone tools dating to the Upper Paleolithic which are likely to have belonged to modern humans. 20th century excavations at a site called Bang Chiang in the northeast of the country demonstrate that pottery was in use during the Neolithic period around 5,000 years ago. What's more is the fact that this pottery contains evidence of rice cultivation. Bronze production was also taking place during this period so the lands of Thailand showed some fundamental Neolithic revolution developments. Our knowledge of the earliest societies of Thailand have to be constructed from archaeology coupled with later literary works from various societies and nation-states. Wet rice cultivation could have been brought to the region by the Mon people who historians believe to have migrated southwards from the Yangtze river valleys of China between four and 5,000 years ago. The Mon people speak an Austro-Asiatic language, so it is related to the national languages of the modern countries of Vietnam and Cambodia, who speak Vietnamese and Khmer, respectively. By the first millennium, the societies of Southeast Asia would have been exposed to the influence of the powerful societies that were emerging in China and India and this was likely to be in the form of trade agreements and cultural influence. When Chinese diplomats and pilgrims travelled through the area during the first millennium, 
they would notice a lot of Indian influence on the area. The Chinese referred to a cultural nation called Funan, which existed as an economy when discovered in the 3rd century. Although the Mon people were living in Funan, they had been influenced by Hinduism and the Sanskrit writing system, which clearly had migrated from Indian societies to be in close contact with the residents and is likely to have been established for some time. During the 7th century, a client state of Funan called Chenla rose to power and subjugated Funan and held power in the area of modern Cambodia. In the area of central Thailand, the Mon people had created a kingdom called Tuarawadi, which continued to observe Hinduism and Buddhism, so they were very Indianized. In the northwest of Cambodia exists a large lake called Tonle Sab. At the beginning of the 9th century, a man called Jayar Varaman united the Khmer people and established a kingdom around the lands of the lake and its outlets into the South China Sea, which are in the south of the modern country of Vietnam. He would rule as the king of the previously disunited Khmer people as Jayavaraman II. The Khmer state became an imperial force, subjugating city-states of the Tuarawadi kingdom. Those Tuarawadi city-states under Khmer influence would be referred to as the Lavo kingdom. The Khmer Empire dominated the middle of the Indochina peninsula for a number of centuries from the 9th century onwards. One of the most considerable things about the Khmer Empire was their construction of their capital city, Angkor. At its peak, it may have been the home to between three quarters of a million and a million people. The construction of over a thousand temples at the centre of the city has led experts to declare that this is the largest religious monument in the world. The centrepiece is the main complex of Angkor Wat. Its distinct and fascinating style is referred to as Khmer architecture. The architecture is ornate and influenced by Indian styles, but it is nonetheless its own style. This city can be found in the modern country of Cambodia. It may have been during the period that the Khmer Empire dominated the Southeast Asian Peninsula that a migration of peoples arrived in the area. These were the Thai people who spoke a form of Kra Dai language and who are thought to have migrated from southern China into mainland Southeast Asia. The word Thai broadly refers to a human being, so it's not necessarily the Thai people who gave their name to the country of Thailand. The word is so common that it wouldn't be surprising in this part of the world to find it used in many circumstances. The Thai people may have started arriving in the lands of northern Thailand at around the turn of the 9th century. It is very possible that southern Chinese societies would have been exposed to the Mahayana branch of Buddhism, 
but the prominent version of the Buddhism existing in the lands of Thailand during this period was the Theravada Buddhism, which had migrated directly from lands directly influenced by Indian cultures, especially the island of Sri Lanka. The Thai people who migrated from southern China would have been influenced by the Theravada Buddhism observed by the Mon people of the lands of Thailand. Sukhothai During the 13th century, a group of Thai people had established a city called Sukhothai, which is located towards the north of the modern country of Thailand. From here, the city established itself as a power base for a city-state. By now, the Khmer Empire that still influenced this area was in decline. The Khmer had been investing a lot of time, money and energy into their impressive construction projects in Angkor and this involved the extraction of tax money from their imperial subjects. The city of Sukhothai quickly grew tired of this so they rebelled against Khmer rule. It established itself as a kingdom in its own right and its first king was Si Intratit who had been a fundamental part of the rebellion. Sukhothai would continue the local traditions of Theravada Buddhism and would continue to use a writing script evolved from the Khmer writing script which had been originally influenced by the Brahmic writing scripts brought from the region of India. Modern Thai people consider this to be the first establishment of a Thai kingdom as the Sukhothai distinguished themselves from the wider Thai peoples that had migrated from southern China so it could be considered as the birth of the nation of Thailand. The firm establishment of the Sukhothai kingdom with its religion and its writing script was down to King Ramkhamheng the Great. We know that King Ramkhamheng defended his kingdom utilising the honourable method of elephant duelling. In this method, rivals would agree to one-on-one competition on elephant back. This may have been around the time of the origin of elephant duels and once again it could have been a tradition that originated from lands of Indian influence. It seems bizarre that a war might be decided by an elephant duel, but in the minds of the belligerents it would have saved a lot of bloodshed and resources if the battle could not be easily decided otherwise. To the north of Sukhothai there remained a Mon kingdom that had just remained outside of the Khmer Empire's subjugation and it was called Haripunjaya. This kingdom would fall to an alternative group of Thai migrants and the new Thai kingdom was called Lanna. In general, the two Thai kingdoms of Sukhothai and Lanna had surprisingly little to do with each other. They did both celebrate Theravada Buddhism. Ayutthaya Another Thai kingdom emerged, this time to the south of Sukhothai and centred on the city of Ayutthaya. The first king of Ayutthaya was Utong 
who ruled from 1351, but the most significant early monarch was his brother-in-law, Borommarar Chatirat. Under King Borommarar Chatirat, Ayatuya would begin to subjugate Sukhothai territory, symbolising an imperial desire. For the remainder of the 14th century and the beginning of the 15th century, the Ayutthaya grew more powerful. Simultaneously, the Khmer Empire to their east was weakening. To their north, another new nation based on Thai ethnicity was capturing Khmer territory. The nation was called Langchang and would be the basis for the development of the country of Laos. The people of Thai ethnicity in Langjiang are distinguished as the Lao people. A grandson of Burummara Chatirat ruled Ayutthaya as Burummara Chatirat II. While ruling, he would lead a force to attack the Khmer capital city and religious centre of Angkor Thom. The Khmer regime had to relocate and this somewhat signalled the end of the era of the Khmer Empire. While in the Khmer Empire, the Ayutthaya would absorb some of the Hindu aspects of leadership which elevated the king to a much more divine style of monarchy where the king would be absolutely elite within his nation. The people of the Khmer Empire had to relocate and they would form the basis of the Cambodian nation. Under Burummara Chatirat II, the Ayutthaya kingdom would officially annex Sukhothai. Had the Ayutthaya continued to have more success against the Lanna kingdom, even further north, then they would have held a territory very similar in size to the modern nation of Thailand. However, the Lanna were able to successfully defend their territory against Ayutthaya invasion. The rest of the Ayutthaya period involved interaction from visitors from both near and far and with both friendly and aggressive intent. The 16th century represented a time when the countries of Europe had mastered the ability to travel by boat on the open seas, which opened up the entire world to them and created trade opportunities that had not been explored before. The Portuguese arrived at Ayutthaya in the early 16th century. The Europeans would refer to the kingdom as Siam. This opened up a whole new world of opportunity for the Ayutthaya as the Dutch would follow and through their local trade links with the islands of the Philippines, so too would the Spanish. This would create a period of prosperity for the Ayutthaya, but as mentioned before, not all foreign interaction was friendly. The land route from Indian cultures to Thai cultures involved a journey through the lands of the modern country of Myanmar. As Thailand was traditionally called Siam, so Myanmar was traditionally called Burma. The people of this area spoke a Sino-Tibetan language called Burmese, which meant that their language was much more closely related to modern Chinese languages than the Thai language. 
Different polities had existed in these lands for a few centuries, until the 16th century when a significant movement from within the kingdom of Ava emerged. The movement originated from within the principality of Taungu. The Taungu would take control of the kingdom of Ava before they would move on to subjugate Lanna, Ayutthaya and Lanchang, creating what some claim to be the largest empire in Southeast Asia's history. The local vassals showed loyalty to the Burmese king, Baying Nao, but after his death in 1581, the empire quickly fell apart as the vassal states rebelled. In the 17th century, the Prasat Tong dynasty was in control of Ayatuya. One of the more significant monarchs was Narai, who has come to be known as King Narai the Great. His reign is considered to be at a time when Ayatuya was at its most prosperous and Narai went to great lengths to develop strong diplomatic relationships with exotic nations. He nurtured his relationships particularly with Safavid Iran and the Kingdom of France. The influence of the Portuguese and the Dutch within Ayatuya was a concern for Narai and he opted to allow French Jesuits to become important statesmen within the Ayatuya political system. This would be fruitful and modernising for the Ayatuya kingdom but would also unsettle the local Thai statesmen and this resulted in a revolution known to history as the Siamese Revolution of 1688. The French had built a fortress at Bangkok, which had become an important trading port under the Ayatuya. The revolutionaries under their leader, Fetracha, besieged the French fortress and expelled the French from the Ayatuya kingdom. We're not sure how Narai met his final fate, but he had become ill and frail before the outbreak of the revolution, and he may have been poisoned if nature didn't take his life first. This successful revolution may have prevented Christianity from becoming dominant in the Thai kingdom. In Myanmar, the Taungu dynasty of rulers lost control of the country as Mon people from the coastal lands in the south rebelled. However, the rebels didn't maintain control for too long as a new dynasty called the Kombaung took control and launched an international offensive based on the structure that the Taungu had created. The Ayatuya had supported the rebels, with their coastal lands representing a maritime trading opportunity for the Ayatuya. The Kongbaung were keen to not allow the Ayatuya the opportunity to capitalise on Burmese civil unrest. They launched a large-scale invasion of the Ayatuyar kingdom and brutally sacked the capital city of Ayatuyar in 1767. This dramatic action ended the Ayatuyar kingdom. But the Kongbaung could not establish permanent rule over Siam because the Qing dynasty of China had invaded their Burmese homelands. The ensuing civil conflict in Siam resulted in the rise of the Tomburi. The Chakri Dynasty 
An Ayatollah governor called Taksin had fought his way out of the falling city of Ayatollah and battled through Kombang aggression to establish a defensible position at the city of Tomburi. This act of bravery gained him popularity with those Siamese who had survived the Kongbaung onslaught, and so Taksin was able to declare himself as the King of Siam, ruling out of the city of Tomburi, which is now part of the urban area of the Thai capital city of Bangkok. King Taksin would look to re-establish Siamese power by taking on an expansionist policy and developing trade relationships. He imposed authority over Cambodia by replacing their monarch with a pro-Siamese monarch and he would develop trade relationships with the British and the Dutch. The Thai kingdom of Lan Na which is in the north of modern Thailand, was somewhat subject to Burmese authority until the reign of King Taksin, when the Lanna attempted to switch loyalties to their Thai cousins in Siam, the Kongbaung invaded. Lanna did successfully realign itself with Tomburi Siam, but the lands and populations of Lanna were wasted, so the kingdom had lost most of its value. Taksin's efforts to rebuild Siam in the face of what is perceived as bitter and brutal treatment of its lands and people by the Burmese has led to him being revered in Thai culture. He is called King Taksin the Great and in many areas of modern Thailand his coronation day is a public holiday and the image of his monument has featured on Thai banknotes during the late 20th century. Mental illness threatened to make Taksin undo all of his good work, so action was taken to depose and execute him before he could cause further damage to the kingdom. One of his generals, Fra Futayot Fa Chulalok, became the new monarch, beginning the Chakri dynasty of Thai rulers who still rule Thailand to the modern day. He would rule as King Rama I. King Rama I commissioned the construction of the Grand Palace on Ratanakosin Island in Bangkok. One of the temples that was constructed on the Grand Palace complex was Wat Phrakeo, which houses the sacred jasper figurine called the Emerald Buddha. The Emerald Buddha is described as a palladium of the country Thailand, or in other words, an object of great meaningful national antiquity. Going into the 19th century, and Siam had considerable influence over the lands that were represented by the evolving modern states of Cambodia and Laos. The Chakri kings were not able to sustain any meaning influence over the societies of Vietnam, however. The instalment of the Chakri dynasty marked a period when advances in the arts took place, also with many texts translated into the Thai language. So this was a period of great modernisation in the country. During the 19th century, Western countries such as France and the United Kingdom started showing more interest in the area, 
and the Scottish diplomat Robert Hunter spent some time living in Bangkok. While in Siam, he discovered conjoined twins called Chang and Eng. In a century where exhibitions were creating revenue, Hunter saw an opportunity to send the twins to the West in order for them to be on display in travelling freak shows both in the United States and the United Kingdom. Chang and Eng were conjoined by their chests and would become known as the Siamese twins in reference to their country of origin, Siam. It is due to them that conjoined twins are now often referred to as Siamese twins, regardless of their country of origin. By the middle of the 19th century, the British rulers of India had started to expand eastwards into the Burmese lands of the Kongbao. Due to a lack of cohesion in India, the British Crown had stepped in and taken direct control of those lands, originally controlled by the British East India Company, ushering in a period known as the British Raj. On the opposite side of the Southeast Asian Peninsula, the Vietnamese realms were united under the Nguyen Dynasty. France would strike a deal with the Nguyen for control of the city of Saigon, which is the modern Vietnamese capital of Ho Chi Minh City. This meant that both the British and the French now had a foothold in the peninsula from which they could both expand their influence. This would have been quite alarming for Siam, who must have feared for the conquest of their lands, or being the centre of a conflict between the British and the French. The Siamese monarch who would have to deal with this was Chulalongkorn, who ruled Ratanakosin Siam as King Rama V. During the 1880s, both the British conquest of Burma and the French conquest of Vietnam were complete. King Rama V was still quite young and inexperienced in international diplomacy when he came to the throne, but this did not stop him from travelling to nations under European colonial rule and observing their processes of governance. King Rama V would use these models to make great modernisations to his country. He would centralise the rule of the provinces, which would bring greater stability to the country as a whole. He would departmentalise his government, allowing dedicated experts to preside over different aspects of the country's rule, such as defence, education and justice. He improved the education system and overhauled the army by introducing conscription, giving many people a structured start in life. He also introduced an effective police force. So... Siam was modernising to be on a more of a level footing with their European neighbours. Still, Rama V had to make notable concessions to the British and the French by ceding lands to them, especially to the French, in the form of lands such as those in and around the modern countries of Laos and Cambodia. This would enable Siam to avoid colonisation. His achievements led to him being given the epithet Great Beloved King and he eventually died of kidney disease at the age of 57 in the year 1910. Rama V's son, who ruled as Rama VI, continued the process of modernisation in Thailand. 
Rama VI actually studied at Oxford University in the United Kingdom, so he was well exposed to westernised culture, and his attempts to bring western culture to Siam was a huge concern for those traditionalists who resented the dilution of Siamese culture. His decision to support Britain and France in their struggles against the German Empire during the First World War allowed Siam to gain the respect required to become one of the founder members of the League of Nations in 1920, a multinational organisation established with an aim to maintain world peace. However, a financial crisis hit Siam at a similar time and this and public faith in Rama VI waned. Rama VI reportedly fell ill in 1925 and passed away at the young age of 44. The throne passed to his younger brother. Revolution Siam had traditionally had an absolute monarchy and certainly since the end of the 18th century, the Chakri dynasty had control over the Siamese throne. Traditionally, since the Ayutthaya period, many of the monarchs had taken on a very elite existence. Some would only allow a certain chosen few to even come into close contact with them, almost taking on a very sacred existence. King Rama V would go against these traditions, choosing to interact with the public and dress in a much more westernised fashion, as opposed to the traditional regal outfits. A movement called the Kanaratadon was created by Siamese students while they had been studying in Europe. Absolute monarchy was very antiquated in Europe by the 20th century. One of the leaders of the movement was a man called Pridi Thanonyong who had studied in France. The students decided that they wanted to alter Siam to make it more democratic and they realised that many of the people of the country were keen to seeing similar changes and so therefore the Kanaratadon had support from many, even if not from all. While King Rama VII was relaxing away from the city of Bangkok in 1932, the Kanaratadon staged a coup d'etat and took control of government buildings and government officials. King Rama VII was absolutely helpless to do anything about it, but the coup was a bloodless one. It was the fact that not everybody in the country supported the Kanaratadon that led the king to be able to share his power with the Revolutionary Party. Siam was now a constitutional monarchy. Within a year, Pridib Phanomyong had put forward an economic plan of action for the country. The king, the prime minister and other top officials opposed it. So the new constitution was running aground in the earliest stages of its existence. More revolutions took place, resulting in the Prime Minister being ousted from his office and the King abdicating. Siam was in a civil crisis. Another member of the Kanaratadon was a military officer called Plek Fibun Songkram, often referred to simply as Fibun. Feban would rise from the chaos in Siam and take control in a form of military dictatorship. Siam had often been the subject of interest for the Chinese with many Chinese businessmen operating in Siam. 
Feban was hugely concerned with Chinese influence and created policies that would limit the power of Chinese businessmen in Siam. He would initiate the official naming of the country as Prate Tai, which translates to Thailand, in order to emphasise the fact that the word Thai means to be free. This particular word is distinct from the word Thai that is used to describe those peoples who supposedly migrated south from Chinese lands into Indochina over a thousand years earlier. There was a clear desire from Fibun to distance Thailand from China. As a result, Thailand would support Chinese aggressions against China during the Second World War. The Japanese were very keen to control French Indochina, while France itself was under Nazi German occupation. Thailand had not forgotten how they had to bow down to French pressure at the end of the previous century when surrendering the lands of Laos and Cambodia to them. Japan would oversee the restoration of these lands to Thailand in 1941. After the defeat of Japan and the Axis powers at the end of the Second World War, France threatened to veto Thailand's membership into the United Nations, the successor organisation to the League of Nations, if it didn't cede those same territories back to France. And so, this was the case. This act of humility, despite Thailand having not much choice, earned the respect of the United States who sent aid to Thailand in order to help its post-war recovery. In 1946, Pumipol Adulyade came to the Thai throne, ruling as King Rama IX. He acceded to the throne on the death of his brother, King Rama VIII, who had died in mysterious circumstances. He was found shot dead in his bed, and although it was initially announced that he accidentally shot himself, others believe that this was an act of murder. There has never been a definitive conclusion to this mystery. The new King of France would actually be living in Europe at the beginning of his reign, and he would meet his wife while in France. Thailand was being run by a military dictatorship at the time, so the absence of the king was of no consequence. Theban had been ousted as the dictator of Thailand, as their Japanese allies were about to be defeated towards the end of the Second World War, but in 1947 he was able to seize power again. Since the overthrow of the absolute monarchy in 1932, democratic rule had not succeeded in Thailand as it should have done. The military dictatorship continued after the Second World War, but the support of the United States did allow Thailand to become more prosperous during the 1950s. At the time of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, the United States was keen to befriend as many countries as possible and keep them away from communist influence. After the French were expelled from Indochina by the Viet Minh, the Viet Minh would look to establish a communist state in Vietnam. A political entity in the south who called themselves the State of Vietnam would oppose the Viet Minh. This would lead to a civil conflict called the Vietnam War. Communist powers such as the Soviet Union, China and North Korea would support the Viet Minh, 
while capitalist powers such as the United States and South Korea would support the state of Vietnam. Thailand would offer the United States facilities from which to base their military units as well as offering troops to fight for the cause of the state of Vietnam. The United States pulled out of the Vietnam War in 1973 and communist regimes would prepare to take control of Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia. The students of Thailand were frustrated by United States military presence in their country and by the fact that there was still no democracy in the country. So a popular uprising ended up forcing King Rama IX to declare that the leaders of the military dictatorships had left the country. Once again, as is often the case when a regime is overthrown, there was chaos in the aftermath as people sought to take control. One of those statesmen who left the country in 1973 was the Prime Minister Tanom Kitikachon, but things had become so chaotic and disorganised that by 1976 Tanom was encouraged to return and instigate the return of a military government. The reinstatement of a military government brought stability to Thailand but there was still an underlying desire for democracy in the country that was impossible to ignore. During the tenure of the Prime Minister Prem Tinasulanon, he would have to endure rebellions and attempted coups which prompted him to call a general election in 1988 that brought the Conservative Thai Nation Party leader Chatichai Chunhavan to power. He would attempt to distance his rule from that of the military rule and establish a more parliamentary rule. When it was discovered that Chatichai's regime were selling political positions for money, Chatichai was overthrown. This particular military coup in 1991 was reportedly the 17th military coup in Thailand since the 1932 revolution. When the leader of the revolution, Suchinda Kraprayun, was invited to become the Prime Minister in 1992, a huge wave of protesters said to have numbered up to around 200,000 gathered at the palatial grounds on Ratanakosin Island. Their issue was the extension of the military regime, which was supposed to have been replaced by democratic elections. The protest was led by the former governor of Bangkok, Chamlong Sri Mung, and there was a three-day period of heightened tensions where the military tried to enforce a crackdown on the protests. Dozens were killed and hundreds were injured, and a large number of Thai statesmen went missing. The situation is referred to as Black May. King Rama IX was forced to mediate between the two parties, something that he had to do when there had been mass protests in 1973. While Chun Lik Pai was the Prime Minister later in 1992, he would work to move the country back to democracy, lobbying for women's rights and moving the minimum voting age down to 18. The population of Thailand was divided in their opinions on socialism against conservatism and military rule against parliamentary rule and now the overthrow of their leaders was an expectation. Some blame Chuan's regime for allowing Thailand's economy to collapse 
1997, although this is very much subject to opinion considering how many factors can affect a financial collapse. The collapse of the Thai economy had a knock-on effect on just about every country in Southeast Asia and the Far East. Chuang would hold crisis meetings with opposition politicians to plan the recovery and rebuilding of Thailand's economy. The 21st century. The fundamental division of opinions about the direction of Thailand as a nation continued into the 21st century. On the one hand, people want democracy and fair elections. But in reality, the democratically elected governments and leaders have not been able to impose the strict rule over the Thai nation that it has required to help it to get through its national challenges. This is where military coups take place and a far more autocratic and authoritarian dictatorship leads the country, until such a time as the population gets sick and tired of the oppressive style of rule and then via protests forced democratic elections. Thailand is a country that is constantly divided in its opinion on how it should be ruled. The very wealthy Thai businessman Taksin Chinawat became the country's Prime Minister in 2001 and this initially created stability in Thailand. Taksin would work hard to rebuild the country's economy and he would look to support the poorer societies of the country. Some would view this as Taksin buying the loyalty of these societies. Taksin would also need to deal promptly with the humanitarian crisis caused by the infamous 2004 Indian Ocean earthquake which triggered a deadly tsunami which killed approximately 8,000 people in Thailand alone. People who opposed Taksin's rule accused him of corruption and attempting to influence the king, and so a group called the Yellow Shirts was formed to oppose Taksin's rule and influence. Many in Thailand believed that Taksin was good for Thailand, and so they too gathered together as a group called the Red Shirts. Taksin was overthrown in 2006 and despite the fact that Taksin fled to the United Kingdom in 2008 before he was able to make a stand in court to face charges of corruption, Taksin's shadow is still cast over Thai politics after his reign. Just how much influence he maintained in Thailand after his tenure as the Prime Minister is highly debatable. The Red Shirts, the supporters of Taksin, continued their protests in the aftermath of the dramatic end to his time as the Prime Minister. In 2011, the election brought Taksin's younger sister, Yingluck Chunawat, to the role of Prime Minister, marking the first time that a female had performed this duty. Just when it appeared that Thailand was starting to come together with healthy negotiations taking place between the government and their opponents, the army seized power once again in 2014, following the deposition of Yingluck and several of her closest ministers by the Constitutional Court. The Yellow Shirts had always viewed Yingluck as her brother's representative and the country's economy was suffering. King the IX had overseen all of these events since he came to the throne in 1946 and he finally passed away in 2016. He had been struggling with various illnesses throughout his final years of his life 
and he eventually died at the age of 88. His reign is considerable, lasting over 70 years. Many lined the streets at his procession as his body was carried back to the Grand Palace. His wife, Queen Sirikit, who he met in Paris as we already mentioned, survived him. Now she is the Queen Mother, as their son, Wajiralongkorn, rules Thailand as King Rama X. Of all the known monarchical reigns in world history, Rama IX of Thailand is only surpassed in terms of its length by those of King Louis XIV of France and Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Since 1932, the country of Thailand has been a country of internal distrust when it comes to its politicians. The 1932 revolution was a protest against the absolute monarchy and a call for improvement. It ushered in a constitutional monarchy, but has this truly improved Thailand as a nation? It certainly modernised the nation, but the absolute monarchs of the Chakri dynasty had made great steps to modernise the nation anyway, with Rama V taking great steps to westernise the nation. With each ruler and each deposition, it seems that it is only a matter of time before the next protest or the next removal from office. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Thank you very much for listening to this week's special episode about the history of Thailand. It was a special episode commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member Lynn Dowling. Lynn, I hope you you enjoyed that episode this week. Now, um, if you enjoyed the episode and you enjoy all the other episodes, um, you might want to support the podcast. If so, visit our website, thehistoryoftheworldpodcast.com and click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. You too could qualify to commission your own special episode like Ling did this week. Um, When you contribute to the podcast, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and qualify for all sorts of gifts and rewards. So why not go along and have a look and see what you can what you can gain. Um, this week, um, I would like to welcome into the History of the World podcast Illuminati Tobias Bohm, who um, who qualified by using the Buy Me a Book page in actual fact. But you have become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Now. If you want to access bonus material, such as a bit more further news about what's going on in the world of the podcast, what I've been up to, and um, 
some of the uh, some of the sources that I've used for writing uh, this episode, then you can uh, qualify. Uh, you just go to uh, the Spotify link in the description for the podcast, subscribe, and uh, you can listen to that bonus material and get the podcast ad free. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, uh, you can drop me a line uh, at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. There are various other social media pages associated with the website. Just go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website to learn more. Listener messages and reviews. I checked out my Facebook page for the first time in a long time. Um, sometimes I I will check out the messages that I received. There's so many different places where the History of the World podcast is on the, the social media at the moment that I've I've lost total control of it. Um, so let me find out uh, what uh, what you lot have been saying to me through Facebook. Um, got an, a message um, some time ago now. I think it was back in uh, April. No, it was, it was the beginning of May. Ezra Sky Napier put, Hello, Chris. I'm a very late comer to your podcast, but I absolutely love it. My boyfriend told me about it. I'm just finished uh, the fifth unscripted episode in season number one, and I wanted to comment and let you know that not 100% of your listeners are male. I also had to laugh at your awards. Those were funny. That was a long time ago. Thanks for these. I am looking forward to volume two, three, four, and more. Cheers from Ohio, USA. Jeff King um, wrote in and said, I've only just discovered the podcast. Loving it so far. Informative and brilliantly presented. Um, Anaka Shetty has written in and put, Hello, Chris. Uh, Anaka Shetty from Pune, India. I wanted to congratulate you for this project. You are doing an amazing job. Not sure if you are still recording podcasts, but I love history and your podcast is exactly what I've been searching for for a long time. Your style of narration is perfect speed, sound quality, pronunciation. I started in March, April 2023 and I listened to one episode every day. I'm now in volume two, Indus Valley Civilization. I had read a book on early Indians last year by Tony Joseph and your podcast helped cement my understanding of prehistoric humans. Thank you again for doing such wonderful work. Larry Pollack. Uh, wrote in and said thank you very much for the episode on the pre-columbian mound builders i hope it wasn't too obscure but i thought that the rest of the world should know that the us is full of ancient sites uh yeah thanks for the suggestion larry that was your podcast episode thanks for qualifying and and suggesting that uh tell chalak actually sent me a, a link uh to um a underground city that may have belonged to the Hittites from around the Bronze Age collapse so I've encouraged him to share that on the social media pages uh, Wendy Spenard Mundy has written in and put uh, hi great show uh, no idea if Facebook is checked but I thought I would try have you read Clan of the Cave Bear book series by John Owell um, very good but not sure of the science I do love how she uh, oh Jean Owell I thought that was a French name, I beg your pardon. I do love how she portrayed the Neanderthal. Now, I'm not familiar with that one. Um, but thank you, Wendy. Maybe others, other listeners are familiar with that. Uh, Thomas Shea has written in and put, um, Greetings, Chris. More than once you've hit points in history where something can't be stated definitively. Based on the podcast's unique relationship with it, I think at the points in the future of the podcast where you cannot state something definitively, you chalk it up to the big rock. 
So there we go. If if we don't understand, if we if we're not sure um, about um, something, we'll chalk it up to the big rock going forward. How about that? Thanks very much for the suggestion, Tony. Uh, Thomas, I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't know where I've got the name Tony from now. Thomas Shea, perhaps perhaps getting your name wrong, I'll I'll chalk that up to the big rock. Maybe maybe that will be my get out there. But um, anyway, thank you for the message. Um, moving on, uh, we got Matt Hayden, who I'm sure you commissioned a special episode recently, Matt. Um, on, uh, maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, but Matt Hayden said, uh, hello, Chris, loved Elizabeth's, uh, Elizabethan Sea Dogs, a very worthy Illuminati member suggestion. Um, thank you very much, Matt. That was sent to me through Patreon. Lynn Dowling, uh, interestingly enough, who is the woman who commissioned this week's episode, has put, hello, Chris. First of all, congratulations on the fifth anniversary of the podcast. I've only been with you for three of those years, having found you during the pandemic in 2020. But what a great ride. Secondly, please keep those hot magazine episodes coming. Uh, I know they give you a break from writing regular and special episodes, but I suggest that you make them a regular feature. It's a great refresher, and sometimes the information makes a lot more sense in hindsight. The extra time you took to create the Sea Dogs episode was well worth it. Such interesting characters. We look forward to more episodes of that period upcoming. In Marin County, California, south of San Francisco, where I used to live, there is a large sculpture of Sir Francis Drake. The major east-west road there is named after him and Drake's Bay is on the coast near Point Reyes. The famous old Drake Hotel in San Francisco is also named after him. It seems that early Californians were very keen to suggest Drake landed in this area during his voyage of circumnavigation. Subsequent research suggests that he's likely to stay far out to sea after his South American plunders, probably to avoid the Spanish in colonial California. If he came ashore anywhere in North America, they say it was likely in Oregon. Still great fun. And finally, I know writing me a special episode on the history of Thailand, where my brother lives, is going to be a big endeavour, but much more important, Thai history seems to have happened during their... um, Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Much important Thai history seems to have happened during their medieval period. And I believe you plan to cover Asian medieval history sometime in the future. Well, yes, sometime in the very near future, Lynn. Um, I am not impatient for my special episode. If it makes more sense to weave it into your Asian medieval episodes, I hope you will consider that. It's summer. You need to go to your festivals and chill. Post uh, Post some more magazine episodes. Thailand can wait. They've been around a long time. Uh, best wishes, Chris, and again, congratulations. Yes, I did go to the Chalk Valley History Festival last week um, and saw a lot of interesting stuff. If you've never been, I strongly rep- recommend it. It goes on for an entire week every year, uh, very near to Salisbury, which is a terrific city. I, I really love Salisbury as a city, just being around the city. It's the, you know, it's a very relaxing and, um, you know, quite a mature place to be. There's a good amount of nightlife there, um, you know, a few pubs and bars and, and, and one thing and another and uh, plenty to do during the day. Uh, if you're considering like a long weekend break, I can't recommend Salisbury enough. You can go for some beautiful walks, 
Um, so I really had a nice time down there and I'm back now and hence the reason why there's a slight delay in the publication of this episode it would have normally been done about 12 hours ago but um, there was so much for me to do uh, when I came back from my break that um, I had to delay the the publication of this episode so I apologise for that but anyway that's what I've been up to Um, and um, that's it I think for this week I'm going to leave everything else uh, for another week because we've gone on for quite long enough Uh, now I'm not sure if there'll be an episode next week Um, there might be a magazine episode because uh, I've got to um, throw myself deep into the final special episode uh, for this period Um, and it's going to be an episode on uh, historicity and uh, that's basically the history of history. So we're going to be going right back to the very earliest historians um, and uh, such the likes of Herodotus and Thucydides and uh, go all the way through to the modern age and talk about how history is reported and uh, how history is written about. So that's uh, the next special episode. So until then, thanks for listening. Uh, plenty more to come don't forget to sign up be a subscriber and uh, access the bonus material Uh, but if uh, if you're not going to uh, do that um, make sure you rate and review the podcast and until next week when we meet again be good the history of the world podcast written and presented by chris hasler please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.